Welcome, everyone, to The Awakened Catholic Show. Today we have with us a very special guest, the pride of the USCCB and the most <laughs> handsome bishop in Northwest Ohio. None of the above. Bishop Daniel Thomas, but that's coming up right after this. Before we get started, I have to share with you something really exciting here with Awakened Catholic. Um, we have launched the official Awakened Catholic app. You can get it by going to theawakenapp.io. It is such a cool tool. It's a great way to easily access the latest episodes as well as our full library of shows and episodes. But one of the coolest parts about it is all of the community features and the ways that you can interact with the show hosts from the various shows as well as to view presentations from live events. First and foremost, it is just an awesome way to keep up with our episodes. You can watch the episode. You can listen to the episode. You can take private notes about the episode while you're watching or listening to it. And you can also interact with the community in the comments section for each of the shows. All of that to say, check out the Awaken app at theawakenapp.io. Welcome everyone again to The Awakened Catholic Show. Bishop Thomas, what an honor and a joy to have you here with us today. Nick, thank you for the invitation, and I'm glad to join you and all the folks who are following Awakened Catholic. Oh, thank you, Bishop. For those of you who don't know, uh, I actually used to be not only a member of the flock of Bishop Daniel E. <laughs> Thomas, but in fact, an employee of his at the Diocese of Toledo. And so uh, in that time, throughout the years in various ways, uh, I've gotten to know you and I've just really grown to appreciate your leadership and just who, who you are as a man and as, and as a leader, as a bishop. Um, and we'll get into a little bit of why uh, the topic today, which is like, what are bishops and why is it relevant to our lives? Why does it matter sure. to us? Sure. Um, in my own story, what the bishops represent, the office of the bishop represents is pivotal for me, even in believing in God. So I, I'm very excited to talk about this today, especially with a bishop <laughs> of the Catholic Church. So, <laughs> Well, thanks so much. And obviously, thanks. Since I've been here, you've been a great support. I'm deeply grateful for that. And in a particular way, also delighted because I think we first came to know one another through music because of the worship and praise music that was being played for Eucharistic Holy Hours. That is accurate. Yes. So I'm happy that we were uh, really the first moment was a connection through the Holy Eucharist. Amen. Oh, wow. I didn't even think about that. That's beautiful. Thank you, Bishop. Um, so for those who don't know, maybe we have we have a lot of people that watch the show or listen locally, but we also have people nationally. Sure. Who is Bishop Daniel E. Thomas? <laughs> <laughs> He's What was Pope Benedict's line when he was introduced to the world as a pope? He said, I'm simply a, a poor uh, servant working in the vineyard. Oh. And I think uh, that certainly is is who I am. And of course, Pope Francis, when asked soon after his election, people asked him, well, who is Jorge Bergoglio? And he said, a sinner. Mm. So I'm just a sinner in need of redemption and please God fulfilling the vocation, which the Lord has given me in the church, and that was first to be a priest and now called to be a bishop and the ordinary of the Diocese of Toledo. So oh, wow. a humble servant in the vineyard and please God, a faithful one striving for heaven and hoping that I'm taking people with me. That's beautiful. And you're originally from Philadelphia, is that correct? I am. Born and raised in uh, a very, very small neighborhood. Philadelphia is called the City of Neighborhoods. So okay. a small neighborhood in Philadelphia called Maniunk, where I grew up with my brother. I just had one sibling, sibling and my mom and dad, and uh, went to Catholic grade school 
and then uh, an all-boys Catholic diocesan high school before I entered the seminary. That is awesome. And I think about that uh, origin story, and I just imagine, I'm trying to envision, like, the, the man who, or the person who was Daniel E. Thomas before he became Bishop Daniel E. Thomas. And I think about like my wife and I were recently, recently watching the show, the chosen, um, sure. and you see, uh, these men who would become the first bishops. So that's a little spoiler for later in the show. Uh, <laughs> these men who would become the first bishops and the journeys that they were on, uh, with varying degrees of struggle with spirituality and with their own personal lives. And, and it's just really fascinating to me to imagine you before you were what you are now, you know, Sure. Uh, it's, sure. it's really interesting. So in the, what was it like to grow up? You were in a Catholic home. Yes, very much so. My mom and dad, uh, both Catholic, married in the Catholic Church and tremendous witnesses of the Catholic faith for whom faith was very important. And I always say they passed on both the Catholic faith and taught me what it was to love and to forgive. Mm. So it's those things really that opened for me if you will, the door to consider a vocation. My parents never in any way forced that on us. And yet they were such good examples themselves, both as husband and wife. And they also taught me what marriage was because of their love as husband and wow. wife. And so in that way, you know, I learned what the vocation of marriage was through their love. And by God's grace, uh, we were able to celebrate 50 years of their marriage before my mother died at 51. Oh, wow. Praise but God. in every way, you know, they were the ones who sowed the seeds of the faith and of my vocation. Wow. That's, that's really beautiful. And so what was it like culturally for you growing up in, in your, in your circles? Like, was it difficult to be Catholic? What environments were you in outside of the home? Sure. The neighborhood was very much Catholic Okay, and many of my friends were Catholic. Okay. And so it was, it was really rather a Catholic ethos mm -hmm. of a neighborhood, neighborhood with multiple parishes. And in fact, where I grew up, there were uh, really five parishes within a very short distance, yeah. three of which were ethnic parishes, not unlike the diocese of Toledo, which has had over its history, many ethnic parishes. Interesting. So I grew up in one of the uh, not so not so defined parishes mm -hmm. because it was more Irish German. Mm -hmm. But then there was a German parish, a Polish parish, an Italian national parish, and then another sort of Irish parish. Interesting. Interesting. It makes me think about anthropologically, like the shifts that we've seen in our culture, like even looking at some of our parishes locally here in, in the Diocese of Toledo, you know, you had these parishes that were very strongly Polish parish, parishes, Surely. you know, and the demographics have shifted so much, both obviously in attendance, uh, sadly, but also in terms of like that identity of, of relating to like a culture, uh, a culture that embraced Catholicism in a very intrinsic way also. Right. Um, and I think with the the climate that we're in people are becoming catholic or or becoming catholic again um like myself and that's just a very different trajectory and it makes me interested to wonder what our leadership is going to look like in that next generation of leadership yes and and i think you have a a good point there nick because cultural catholicism really was born in many ways from those folks who when they came they brought the cultural catholicism with them mm. and they brought it with them from europe principally now there is cultural catholicism coming to us also for example from uh, from spanish-speaking countries mm -hmm. because spanish-speaking folks have a deep catholicism it's true also we have Asian immigrants coming. So there's a deep Catholicism, for example, with the Vietnamese mm -hmm. and, and others. So really there's, there is that cultural Catholicism, but I think now we have to ask ourselves, 
how are we now culturally Catholic? And I would say simple little things in my home, because it, you know, there was no specific culture, but things like holy pictures on the wall, mm. crucifixes, you know, above our beds, holy water fonts in our bedrooms. So all of these things lent themselves to us. The Sacred Heart picture in our living room, which my father insisted uh, be on the wall, obviously from the promise of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. So these were culturally Catholic mm-hmm. symbols, if you will, in the home. And of course, praying the rosary together as a family. And those are the things I think which ingrained in me the Catholic culture in which I grew up. And then, of course, the great school I went to at the parish where there were a consecrated, consecrated women religious, the Immaculate Heart of Mary sisters. And uh, they very much helped to form that along with the wonderful Catholic lay teachers that I have. That's awesome. And then when I went to high school, the high school was staffed by a number of diocesan priests mm-hmm. who also helped the Catholic identity and culture of that high school. That is something that I have been um, hurting for in our diocese for years, is that type of religious life being just a part of our culture, because we've gone generations now in our diocese where it, it was much less so. You know, really, the, the probably the most that I know of, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the, the deepest sense of that that there still is, is maybe Notre Dame Academy with the Notre Dame Sisters of Notre Dame. Um, and But I don't know that we have the same type of deeply engaged uh, and even just present uh, religious life in our diocese until recently, which, oh my gosh, when I saw the news of what you did, Bishop, I was... Well, just to note, I mean, for decades, you know, we had a very strong presence of many consecrated religious men and women throughout the diocese who with great generosity served in particular in Catholic education, Mm -hmm. both Catholic parishes and in our high schools, even our diocesan high schools. Over time, that tremendously diminished. Now there are four private high schools, private Catholic high schools, obviously a Jesuit high school, Francis de Sales, a, a, which is St. Francis. Mm-hmm. There's the Ursuline School and the Notre Dame School. So there are still four Catholic high schools, which still very much connect to their religious roots mm-hmm. as consecrated religious. But we've been very, very blessed. Uh, I presume what you're referring to yes. is the coming of the Dominican Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. And of course, you know, their entire apostolate is exclusively Catholic education. Wow. And so when, uh, you know, when I begged and uh, cajoled Mother Assumpta, who was so generous to send us four sisters to, to teach in the school of St. Michael, the Archangel in Finley, mm-hmm. and to establish a convent there, she was very insistent, as she is with all the sisters, that all those sisters be in the classroom and teaching. Wow. And that's their charism, Nick. So it, it's simply a matter that this is the living of their charism, and this is who they are. And I'm sure we will see the ripples of, of the grace that comes to our diocese from St. Michael's School uh, for years to come. I mean, in, in the future in particular, we will probably see people rise up in our church, in our, in our, in our parish leadership, or, or even just around the country that will be impacted. Because I just think about my experience of conversion um, coming back to faith at St. Thomas More University Parish and the job that Father Michael Danderan did there so beautifully where he inspired uh, men and women to pursue the Lord in such a powerful way. He he went, he took me and one other guy to um, into discernment retreats at St. Meinrad and like he, he would just take this such personal care for every person that he was discipling. Um, and 
that type of ministry, that type of discipling, and like what the sisters of uh, the Dominican sisters are going to do at St. Michael's, um, that has such a lasting impact. I wouldn't be the Catholic I am today if it weren't for Saint uh, for Father Michael Danderand uh, being so intentional as he was in his work, and he was one man. Blessed be God. And, and what a gift, you know, Father Michael right now is deployed yep. as a chaplain uh, to the military. And we're very, very proud of him. And of course, his parish suffers because he's not there immediately mm-hmm. with them. But when he'll be coming back in November, please God. And the gift, of course, is that he'll continue to work as chaplain at the uh, Air Force Base, the 180th. Yeah. So we're very grateful for that. But what you said was so true, because in my humble experience, too, the religious who taught me, I not only was inspired by them, that is the consecrated religious women, but I literally became their friends too. Yes. And uh, there was one sister who actually was uh, my sixth grade teacher. And after she long, long time was retired, I was able to visit with her. And folks told me that in fact, she had been praying a rosary for me every single day without my knowledge. Wow. So clearly it's also a great gift for our retired religious consecrated men and women, especially women who, whatever their active apostolate was, you know, at one time they have really transferred it into a new apostolate, which is an apostolate of prayer, which is invaluable for the church and for all of us. Yeah. And, and again, that ripple effect, uh, you know, there's, or the the butterfly effect, maybe it could be a a better analogy. Like the, the small things that we do today to minister to people and the small things that these religious communities are doing, Going back to the example of Father Mike Danderan, even just here at Awaken Catholic, there are so many people doing work through Awaken Catholic right now that are all a result of direct ministry from Father Michael Danderan. Andrew wow. Reinhardt hosts a show here on Awaken Catholic. John Mark Grodi hosts a show here on Awaken Catholic. And then so many others. Uh, Rob Holler is involved in one of our shows at Awaken Catholic. And all of these men, uh, and then many women as well, Teresa Grodi, they went through the school of Father Michael Danderan, you know, <laughs> and he just created such a uh, a beautiful environment to desire and pursue the Lord. And I, I miss that. Uh, but, but I, I live on through, you know, what I experienced there as well. But it's a gift to know too, that it's not just consecrated religious, but obviously yes. Father Dan Durand is a diocesan priest. Yes. So to recognize that the gift of the diocesan priesthood, the gift that is to a parish and of course to a university parish yes. where there can be, and that term that's been used by now at least three popes, the, that close accompaniment of someone mm-hmm. literally greeting them and meeting them where they are in, in their life and then assisting them to be literally moved to know Christ, live Christ, serve Christ better. Amen. And I, I pray that the Lord blesses father Michael for meeting me where I was at uh, because man, I'm sure he's going to get some purgatory points shaven off for that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, speaking of accompaniment and discipleship, we're gonna we're gonna dive into a little segment here that has been come to know to be known as the Kerygma Speed Round. Sure. Okay. So I'm gonna hit you with three questions. Okay. Who is? How Jesus? long do I have to answer the question? <laughs> well, so a lot of these are presented, you know, as like an elevator, so uh, elevator pitch metaphor. So you know, what's your elevator pitch for who Jesus is? Okay. I I think for me, always striking is the fact that in the catacombs, the first reference we have of those who are martyred for Christ, they would etch a fish, which of course became the ancient symbol Mm -hmm. for a Christian and inside put the Greek letters, which were the beginning of words, which identified who they were. So they were identifying themselves forever as Christians and the words which formed this fish in Greek were Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. 
So obviously the word Christ is Messiah. So Jesus Christ is our Messiah. He came to set us free from our sins. Whenever I am in grade schools, I ask children, I say, why did Jesus die on the cross? Because he loved us, because he wanted to save us from our sins, and because he wanted to open for us the way to heaven. Oh, glory. I love that. So uh, that's who he is. Give me an elevator pitch for having faith in him or walking with him in your life. Sure. Obviously, to have faith in Christ Jesus means to accept him. We hear that from our Protestant brothers and sisters, don't we? Mm -hmm. And evangelicals, you know, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Well, I know a Catholic friend of mine who said, have I accepted him? I eat him every Sunday. <laughs> and I was a little shocked by that. But sometimes being shocked is is good. Mm-hmm. And I think as Catholics, we have to recognize that we meet him in sacred scripture. We meet him in the Holy Eucharist. We meet him in the church and in her members. We meet him in one another. So I think to uh, to say, where do I find faith? Faith can come in many ways. It can come through reading. It can come through sacred scripture. It can come through the quiet of our prayer. It can come through Eucharistic adoration. But most of all, do we need to go before him, I believe, and receive him in the Holy Eucharist? Because there, we meet him in a way that we cannot in any other way. Mm, We meet him physically. Yes, yes, I love that. Uh, And there's a little bit of overlap there into the next question, which is, what is your elevator pitch for life specifically as a Catholic? Well, I would say the elevator pitch refers, and can I go to my Bible? Please, please. <laughs> the elevator pitch refers to the uh, motto that I chose for my coat of arms as a bishop. And since that's the topic, Nick, I thought Fantastic. this would be correct. Yes. And that is from John's Gospel, John 20, 28, where Thomas, you know the scene where Thomas is meeting the resurrected Lord for the first time. He was not in the upper room when Jesus, risen from the dead, appeared to the first apostles the first time. The second time he is there and Jesus greets him and he he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, put your hand out and put it in my hand, place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Mm-hmm. And for all of my priesthood, even as a seminarian, that phrase, Nick, has been a, a very, very key part of my own spiritual journey in my prayer. I've used that phrase for a retreat meditation every time I've made retreats since I was a seminarian. And so it was very natural that that phrase became the phrase that I would choose as my Episcopal motto, because it is literally the very heart of our Catholic faith. It's the resurrection confession of faith spoken through Thomas. Wow. So if we are to be a resurrection people, as St. Augustine says, then we have to be those who literally confess our faith in his resurrection. St. Paul says, if he's not risen from the dead, then our faith is for naught. Mm. So for me, I would say that would be, uh, the in Italian, there's a word, the nocciolo, the nut, or okay. the core of our argument. The core for me is my resurrection faith that hopefully confesses first in my prayer and then in my words and deeds that Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead. Wow. And there's so much there. There is so much there to, uh, the resurrection is the key. I mean, it's the hinging point of everything. It's the hinge of our faith. Yeah. And, and as Catholics, it's who we are. Now, some people like to play on the, on of words course. too, Nick, because Thomas is my last name. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, th- thank you so much for that Bishop. Uh, now, before we go on, uh, I have to say that there were people that were getting worried that we would not continue doing the Catholic weird stuff segment. 
but here we are. But even now we can do it. We can do it. So, ladies and gentlemen, Catholic <laughs> Weird Stuff. Catholic Weird Stuff. Well, I do, they do the things that they do. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to take advantage of our topic and exploit the fact that we have with us a bishop of the Catholic Church here in the Awakened Catholic Studios. So the question for today, the Catholic weird (laughs) stuff is, what are the pointy hats that bishops wear? And often people call it the pointy hats. The pointy hats, yeah. (laughs) But obviously, folks, it's called a mitre. Uh, The word mitre comes from a Greek word, mitra, which means turban, and obviously various interpretations, but at least one is that it goes back as far as Old Testament Jewish priests who wore a headdress in order to minister in the sanctuary. And that headdress, we even see, you can see it in uh, lots of iconography. It looks like a modern day mitre in some art. It looks like it turned sideways. But today, of course, the mitre, it's a twofold stiff flap, which is soft in the center, From the back are two lappets, and those lappets hang down the back, and the bishop has worn that. First, it began probably with a pope in about the year 1000, and he wore a headdress at that time, which then, if you will, developed very, very quickly. And since that time, this is the, if you will, liturgical headdress that is worn by every bishop in a liturgical ceremony. So he wears a mitre, but but Nick, they get a twofer today on <laughs> okay. Catholic weird stuff because it's not just the mitre. He also wears he also wears underneath of it a zucchetto. Mm-hmm. So whenever I am in grade schools, I tell the the young people you can learn a new Italian word zucchetto, and they all say the word zucchetto, which reminds people because it's the skull cap, the purple skull cap, at least for a bishop, that sits on the back of his head, and it originally was, of course, a skullcap of monks because they would cut their hair in a tonsure and it would keep their heads warm in the wintertime. Interesting. And then that developed, of course, and then it developed into a headdress for priests and bishops and then even for Holy Fathers because we know the Pope wears a white zucchetto right. underneath his mitre. Mm-hmm. A cardinal, of course, is red, a bishop is purple, and a priest is black. That is so interesting. Is there any... Uh connection to our Jewish ancestry in the use of that zucchetto. Um, or is, is, is I say that right? Perfect. Okay. Uh, I think some people would, would say that the, it was the, uh, if the, you will, the yarmulke, right. It, it was a successor. Some people would say, okay. Since of course, as, as Catholics, as Christians, we have our roots in the Jewish faith. Absolutely. Yeah. That's very interesting. Now I must tell you a personal story about the mitre, Nick, Please. because when I was ordained, my brother asked me the significance and Fran said to me, now tell me about this mitre. What is that because it's one of the three symbols Mm -hmm. that a bishop receives at his ordination as a bishop. So he receives the mitre, which is a sign that he's to lead in prayer his people. He receives the crozier so that he's to lead his people, obviously, as shepherd. And that is the staff. The staff itself, exactly. And he receives the ring, which he is wed to his diocese as a symbol. So my brother said, well, what about the height of the mitre? And I said, well, the height of the mitre is different according to style. I said, but some say that the mitre is the sign of holiness. And my brother said, well, yours better be very low. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I, I just learned a ton from the, from all of that. Thank you. Absolutely. That, that's fantastic. Um, well, you heard it first here, folks. That's the, the mitre and the zucchetto and, um, the crochet, uh, 
Three for one, really. Absolutely. Three for one deal. Okay, so uh, to transition us into the main topic for today, which is like, what is a bishop mm-hmm. and why does, why should it matter in my life? Um, I want to explain a little bit about uh, briefly my journey and, and why the office of the bishop um, made such a big difference for me to even believe in God. Uh, I had gone to Catholic elementary school in junior high, and I went to a, a, a public high school uh, at which I found out for the first time that like not everybody's Catholic. Very interesting. Um, we did have one uh, Jewish student in my class, but you know that was I really had no exposure to non-Catholic Christians until that point uh, in high school. Through high school, uh, I started to learn more about the different Christian walks. Um, and depending on the girl that I was chasing at the time, I would be visiting whatever church she went to. Um, it and happens that way. It does happen that way. <laughs> so by the time I graduated high school, I'd really been exposed to quite a number of flavors of Christianity. Um, and and even been involved in the youth groups at any of those church churches. After high school, I moved to Florida. And I, because I was given an opportunity to sing, I spent a little bit of time attending a Unitarian Universalist church, Mm. which was very illuminating. Uh, And in retrospect, um, I I kind of do and I kind of don't want to say that I wouldn't trade having had that experience because I learned a lot about the world. I'm sure. And where things are at right now in our culture by attending there, because it's kind of in in a very literal sense, the epitome of, of humanist theology and philosophy. And frankly, in a, in a, uh, at face value, you really don't see this, but underlying humanism is Satanism, mm. um, which I've since come to understand. Mm. Um, and you know, go ahead. not underlying all humanism. <laughs> no, no, no. The humanistic, like <laughs> I, the, theological approach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because really it, it's the idea that we are the gods. And, and Satan's number one goal is he, he cares less about us worshiping him and more about us not worshiping God. So as long as God doesn't have and us, if we worship happy. ourselves, he wins. Exactly. Amen. Um, and really that's what I found there is, is literally the bookstore at this church, um, was a big buffet line of all major world religions. And the invitation was to invent your own faith, mm-hmm. combining and mix and matching and whatever. And for me, after my experience in high school, that was the last straw. I was like, man, none of this is true. Um, and I was an agnostic flirting with atheism at that point. I'd kind of just ruled out faith altogether because I just wasn't seeing a foundation of truth or, or anyone, I didn't see anyone having an authentic, uh, claim to truth. Um, because everyone was pointing to the Bible. They had a Bible on the podium at this place, but I never once saw it open for a sermon, Mm. you know, so they were Christian. Um, so it wasn't until I learned about the church's teachings on artificial contraception, actually, which at the time I was still a heathen and I was still a bad person. And I still, I was actually more annoyed than not about the teaching on artificial contraception. Mm. But what stuck with me and haunted me was the reason for the church's teaching other than the moral uh, elements of it. But the idea specifically that the church in 2000 years has never changed any of its teachings on anything for any reason. And Diving into why that is, which is the uh, the apostolic succession and the, the ways in which truth has been preserved and the idea that if if truth is truth, then it can be unchanging. Gravity will always be true. Uh, you know, you can never just stop believing in gravity and then suddenly it doesn't apply to you, you know? Yes. Uh, and so for me, that idea of apostolic succession became foundational in my being open to believing in God at all. Mm-hmm. And to this day, that, that remains true. Um, and it's not a matter of having good bishops. It's a matter of having bishops. 
Jesus didn't make perfect men the first bishops. And one of his 12 apostles betrayed him. Jesus was willing to to lay authority on people who, who had the potential to misuse it or, or to, uh, you know, deny it. Um, so I... Go ahead. Did you? No, no. I was going to say on simple human instruments. Yes, precisely. Right. Precisely. And so, and that's actually more evidence of the power of apostolic succession in the office of the bishop is the fact that there have been so many bad people <laughs> over history, uh, whether it's from infiltration, from other outside sources, or just people that didn't have their hearts in the right place or whatever. Mm -hmm. The fact that nothing has changed despite that is miraculous. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely miraculous. And it makes me think about um, in the gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 16, when, when Jesus uh, places on Peter, uh, he, he names him Peter uh, from Simon. And he says uh, that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Precisely. I see that manifesting in apostolic succession. Mm -hmm. And it's the very words, you know, that were chosen for the interior drum of St. Peter's Basilica, which is over the dome, is right over the place where St. Peter is buried. And those are the very words that were chosen for the base of that drum. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And so to me, even just to be in the room with you and having had a relationship with you for years, um, it, it, because of what the Office of Bishop represents for me, uh, I just value so much um you know, having you as a leader and having you in my life, uh, having you in the room, talking to you right now about this. Uh, and, and it's really because of, of, again, what that represents in, in my own faith journey. And so um, I want to dive in because I think that it can only help people to understand the truth behind the office of the bishop, what sure. it really is, what it is not. Uh, and then even break down a little bit of, you know, the, some of the separate categories of what bishop, what types of roles bishops can fill. Sure. Um, so why don't we begin? Um, can you can you share a little bit about uh, the history of how we got to this point or, or you know, the title bishop? Because that wasn't initially the, the verbiage. Sure. We didn't even have, quote, priests at the beginning. So how, how would you, we had presiders. <laughs> well, I, I would say, I always ask folks and uh, on the radio show on Annunciation Radio, the Bishop's Corner, I always say, go to the sources. So yes. there are three principal sources that I would invite people to, especially in their own search and examination for the truth and for the truth of the faith. And I would say, clearly, those are first scripture and then, and obviously, sacred tradition with a capital T, clearly the Catholic Catechism, mm -hmm. and Canon Law. So those are the three sources to actually go where we can learn abundantly what the church says, what she has said, and what she teaches about the office of bishop. So in a nutshell, I mean, if we did it biblically, we would have to say that the apostles are the successors because we are obviously the heirs of Judaism, and we are culturally and spiritually Jewish in our roots, that it was the 12 tribes of Israel. So there are multiple references in sacred scripture even about the 12 tribes of Israel and the apostles being fundamentally the new 12, wow. 12 yeah. leaders. So uh, clearly that's very, very evident in sacred scripture. In scripture in the New Testament, of course, is the the naming of Peter, but it's the naming of the 12. So Jesus clearly has multiple, and we know this, obviously, multiple disciples. We know, right, there's that number 72. He sends them out two by two. But then who knows how many disciples there were. But then scripture is very clear on telling us. And then he chose 12. And he chose 12 to be with him and to go out and preach. So that's very, very clear. This was not favoritism, but this was him fulfilling the Jewish law 
that he would choose these 12 to fundamentally be the foundation of the church. Wow. And then when he names Peter, obviously as the rock, he says, you are Peter upon this rock, I will build my church. And already the 12 were a body or a college. So our understanding as Catholics is that every apostle is ultimately a successor. Every bishop is a successor of the apostles. And in some way, then the tradition, the scripture, the belief is carried on. So our, our entire, our entire faith is fundamentally apostolic. Well, yeah. And, and that's the, through the laying on of hands, which we see in the new Testament. Certainly. Um, I just, I've always been fascinated by that, by that idea that you can trace back the popes all the way to Peter. Right. And can, is, can the same be said for bishops in general? Can you follow the laying on of hands all the way back to the apostles? Right. Unfortunately, I don't think records are clear enough, so okay. I can trace my apostolic lineage at least back into the 1500s. Okay. But then if you ask people even today who, who love doing genealogy, okay. usually they can't get their families back too much further sure. because there simply aren't records. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. But, you know, just a line, you know, the word episkopos in Greek means overseer. So they appointed overseers for the church. And really, they were the very first, fundamentally, priests and bishops, because there were no, were no presbyters yet. Mm. And then deacons came in because they were the assistants to the bishop. Mm -hmm. And then presbyters were ordained, and that they shared in the priesthood of Christ, which, of course, the bishop's priesthood is the fullness of Christ's priesthood. And the deacons shared in that servanthood of Christ. So that was where, if you will, the three three levels of orders, holy orders, came in. Okay. And the word episkopos is overseer. So each bishop then became the overseer of a particular area. So even today, for example, as the bishop of the Diocese of Toledo, I'm the bishop of a particular geographical area and a particular number of people within that geographical area. Interesting, interesting. And going back to, you, you said just a moment ago the, the, about the, the full priestly authority from Christ uh, in, right. in the office of bishop. Yes. Um, you see, uh, and, and it's really easy to like kind of graze over some of these passages because sometimes it's more subtle than, than otherwise. But there, time and time again, you see that the bishops are set apart from the, the other crowds of people um, even in some of the parables that Jesus will share with a crowd, he'll turn to the to he takes his them apostles. apart. Yes. Right. He and, takes them apart to, as we've heard in the recent Sunday Sunday readings, mm -hmm. he takes them apart to explain to them, for example, mm -hmm. a parable. Because, and of course, first of all, they ask, mm -hmm. and who does he give the his prayer? How do we pray? He gives it to the apostles. Mm -hmm. So he really does take them apart. And what does he do before he dies? Mm -hmm. He takes them apart. Yes. And then he shares with them himself in the mm -hmm. Last Supper. And and literally, that's where the church traces, if mm -hmm. you will, the, the foundation of the apostolic college there yes. to the last supper. And you even see Jesus like setting them up for that when, in ways that they didn't understand leading up to that. So I think Surely. about the two occasions that he multiplies the loaves and fish. And in each one of those occasions, he follows kind of the Eucharistic formula of the last supper where he lifts it, break, give thanks, breaks it and gives it to the disciples. Right. He doesn't pass any of it to the crowds of people themselves. He gives it to the disciples who then give it to the people. Right. And it follows so formulaically, formulaically, uh, the exactly the recipe of what he does at the last supper like sure. he's teeing them up like when you do this when you lift it up and you give thanks and break it, it like a miracle happens 
And we believe that because of that apostolic succession, that's how and why the church has received from Christ what he intended for us. Mm -hmm. So every bishop, when he's ordained a bishop, he's given, if you will, what is called a threefold munis or office. So his threefold office fundamentally is an office of governing, sanctifying, and uh, my gosh, I just forgot the third one. I can't believe it. Uh, so t teaching. So teaching, governing, I put them out of order. That sure. was the reason I forgot it. Teaching, governing, and sanctify. And every bishop is to receive, that is, to receive the tradition. And then he's tasked both to protect it and to proclaim it. Mm. So, you know, we hear modern language like servant leader. Of course, Jesus was a servant. Every bishop is a servant leader. But in a sense, it's, you know, even people in business use that terminology. So the terminology servant leader is servant leader in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. And the priest, of course, together with the bishop, in the person of Christ, the head. Mm -hmm. So that in, in essence, the bishop's task is to, to teach the faith, to guard it and proclaim it, mm -hmm. to govern the flock entrusted to his care and to guide and guard them as any shepherd would. And then to sanctify, and the principal sanctifying office is through the sacraments and obviously principally through the Holy Eucharist. Mm -hmm. I think a really interesting um, case study for this idea of in persona Christi um, for me is in the sacrament of reconciliation, confession, um, the rite of penance. I think about how the wording that Jesus uses in the gospel is so particular and interesting. He says uh, in, in the upper room, he breathes on them and he says, whoever's sins you forgive are forgiven. Whoever's sins you retained are retained. And we have this tendency uh, out of a fear of turning people off to the faith to like change the words of Jesus there. Well, it's not the priest forgiving you. It's Jesus forgiving you. And that actually does not line up with what Jesus said there. The authority in uh, priesthood and and then even more so in in, in uh, the episcopate like that is actually a foundational part of our church and we can't pretend that isn't there it is jesus through the priest through the human instrumentality right and, and it, it's so dangerous to me to water that down because if you if you lose sight of where that authority has been invested by jesus you lose a lot of reasons to be catholic and obviously the priest in hearing confession the priest doesn't receive his authority or claim his authority on his own correct he receives that authority from christ and he receives that authority sacramentally yeah yeah, so it's the bishop, fundamentally, obviously, it's the bishop who ordains priests, and it's bishops. So over time, it's three bishops who ordain a bishop. So it's very, very clear yeah. that authority, and it's all authority for service, it's authority that is passed on because it was given first by Christ. That's It's so powerful and so beautiful. And, and it's his authority, not ours. Right, yeah. And it's a tragedy to to lose sight of the power of that. And notice too, Nick, you know, the two places where, where the priest or bishop, when he's hearing confessions or offers mass, where he moves into the first person. So he's speaking mm. in the person of Christ. So at the end of confession and the absolution, the priest says... I absolve you. Yes. So he's speaking in the person of Christ at that moment and at the altar. You know, he makes bold, sinful and humble as he is. He makes bold, not through any authority of his own, but through the authority and power, which is given sacramentally by Christ. Mm. He makes bold to say, this is my body, which is yes. given for you. This is the cup 
This is the chalice of my blood. So he's speaking in the first person. That is, it's so huge. It's so huge. And it gets me excited. So, uh, and I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. So we talked about, um, how the apostles, uh, would become the bishops and how then, um, they had deacons, uh, to help them in, in liturgy. Yes. Um, and we actually see, uh, evidence of that uh, in the New Testament, but also in the early church writings uh, very clearly. The Acts of the Apostles, the early church fathers. Yes. Um, and then, uh, and then how the priests then came in, uh, as, as like an ex- extension of the work of the bishops precisely, uh, to help them as the church was growing. And remember in, in the acts of the apostles and Timothy, you know, the other bishops who were ordained, we hear first they chose candidates who were worthy. Then they prayed and then they they mm-hmm. decided on who it would be, mm-hmm. which is precisely what happens today. Yes, yes. And we even see that with, with what happened with Judas. You know, they didn't say, oh, I guess we'll just have 11 of us now. Precisely. They, they said, let's fill the office. And that's very, very clear. And that's why I brought up the reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. Yes. Because it was clear that he chose 12 as a college and then they they wanted obviously they were they were bound in a sense mm-hmm. by Christ's will to complete that college. Yes. So so we talked about those three kind of uh, tiers of clergy um, within the episcopate within the office of bishop. There are also different roles though. Uh, so a lot of people don't know the pope is actually he's also just a bishop. <laughs> Never say just. Well, just is a strong word, but he at, at its core, he's a bishop. Precisely. He's the bishop of Rome. Precisely. Um, and so I want to kind of see if we can delineate between what a pope is, what a cardinal is, what an archbishop is, and what a bishop is. Sure. I think for most folks, that it's, it's a little bit hard to get this distinction, but I always try to teach very simply and directly and to say, you know, every, every cardinal is a bishop, but not every bishop is a cardinal. Every pope is a bishop, but not every bishop is a pope. Mm -hmm. So clearly there are three sacramental orders of holy orders, deacon, priest, and bishop. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, there is, if you will, the honorary title, which the Holy Father himself chooses a group of consultors or counselors, if you will, to be his closest counselors. These are the cardinals. Interesting. So the cardinals then become closest advisors to him. And we know as the church developed, then those, those consultors would choose the new successor of, of, of the successor, Peter, when he would die, obviously, or resign the office. So every, every cardinal is you almost always not necessarily because it's because again, it's a title. So it's an honorary title. It doesn't require that the person be a bishop. Interesting. But most often is. But there are cardinals who have been named to our theologians, for example. And then, of course, every pope is first a bishop. Very often a cardinal, but in the history of the church, there have been popes who were elected who were monks, and they were ordained deacons, priests, and bishops, and then became the pope. So I think it's very, very important also to say the simple distinction of an archbishop, which you mentioned. Mm -hmm. An archbishop is simply a bishop who governs a larger territory and is usually the metropolitan of that territory. So Ohio yeah. has six dioceses. There's one archbishop, Cincinnati, which is the metropolitan see 
usually the larger or, quote, the more important, perhaps. And that's why it's an archdiocese governed by an archbishop. So uh, along but those- all equal as bishops. Okay. So every bishop, every archbishop, every cardinal, if he was a bishop, and every pope all have the sacred order of the episcopacy. Yeah, so the pope is not more of a pope, not more of a bishop than you are. Uh, well, no, precisely, but he's the vicar of Christ on earth, right? But he's also the vicar in his own diocese, right? Which is Rome, right? And that's why he can be the vicar of Christ, sure, because he's already the vicar of Rome mm. as bishop of Rome. Yes, yes, interesting. So you mentioned that a cardinal could be someone who is not a bishop. Yes, uh, and there have been theologians. I'm curious, sure. um, would such a person? Uh, not dress as a cardinal as the way we think of a cardinal looking. Sure, sometimes they would, sometimes they okay. would not. Interesting. More Interesting. often, more often not. So um, we're living in a weird day and age. Obviously, you know, hashtag twenty twenty. Um, but but just in general, um, <laughs> hashtag coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. Hashtag political environment. Oh my goodness! Yes. Um, and we're living in a day and age uh, more so. I mean, we thought we were living in a digital, digital era January of this year. We had no idea. That's so true. Huh? <laughs> um, and in this digital era, the 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 type of uh, connection that people are able and not able to have has completely transformed, mm-hmm. even from January to March. Sure. Totally different. And even what we're doing right now. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think about how leadership and engagement um, with your flock has to look totally different. And I think about from the flock side of it, your access to your leadership and, and, um, the type of exposure you get to your local leadership versus a broader leadership, Mm -hmm. um, because of social media and whatever, um, your access and exposure to different leaders, different bishops, different priests is going to look totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think about like for a long time we had, you know, Bishop Robert Barron before he was Bishop, Bishop he was famously Father Robert Barron. Absolutely, sure. And that, you know, fame uh, followed him into uh, the Episcopate. Absolutely. Um, and Word on Fire was already extraordinarily exactly. popular. Yes. And I think about how many people, including myself, ha- have learned a lot from him and the work that they're doing. Sure. Um, and then I think about uh, that as just kind of an example, but the, there are also more radical examples where we have now different bishops and priests kind of coming out of the woodworks on Twitter and, and you know, making these uh, statements of, of this is what's right, this is what's wrong. And some of them seem fairly sound and some of them you're like, I wish you wouldn't have said that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder in this day and age where you locally are my bishop, but I don't live locally anymore solely. I live digitally. Surely. All of us do. And what are the ramifications for that in terms of who we are to turn to, uh, to be obedient to their teaching and obedient to their guidance when we have bishops that might make declarative statements that kind of seem to conflict with our local bishop or our local bishop makes a statement that conflicts with what we think is true in Rome. And it just seems like a very confusing time to be a Catholic. I understand. I I think the first response I would give Nick is that uh, nothing is new under the sun. Sure. (laughs) So I think we have to take an historical perspective and realize, I mean, we, we just had a discussion about the apostolic college and i mean the 12 that were chosen and judas betrayed the lord peter denied him until he you know expressed Mm -hmm. his sorrow so i think we also have to say through the history of the church bishops have argued with each other there are examples we have all through history Mm -hmm. of of heresies 
where bishops fell on the wrong side, if you will, when when a statement was made by a council and the council agreed there were bishops who fell on the wrong side and fundamentally were supporting, for example, Arianism. Mm. But I think what we have to recognize is, again, every bishop is human. Every bishop is is chosen to represent the church and Jesus Christ faithfully. And perhaps, I mean, each one of us is weak and maybe I make mistakes. Maybe we all make mistakes. But I think we have to help our Catholic people realize this is nothing new. Sure, that's huge. So the reality is over history, I mean, let's just take a look at at England when Henry VIII declared that, you know, he was going to marry someone different. And Thomas More, the chancellor, stood up against him. And one bishop, Nick, one bishop, Bishop Fisher, stood up against him. And all the other bishops went with the king. And so they left the church. So I think, you know, we have to be very mindful that this is nothing new. Yeah. And this really, this challenge to lay people is, is not new. And I think the challenge is simply to have them do what they do best. That is as lay people to be faithful to the church and her teaching, to celebrate the Eucharist every weekend on Sunday to be fed by the sacred scripture and to know the faith themselves. Mm. So I always say to people, you know, when they ask me, well, should I believe this or that? And I say, well, what do you think that believe the church teaches? Mm. So don't believe it because I say it, believe it because this is what the church teaches. So for example, in our recent uh, effort to inform the Catholic voter, you know, together with Peter range from our uh, office for uh, uh, life and justice, you know, one of the things we wanted to do was say, this is presenting, you know, conscience and the Catholic voter, not what's my opinion, but we wanted to present what does the church teach and just quote what the church teaches. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to argue with what the church teaches. Yeah. So I think to say that is helpful to people and to help people and please God that they can please God, trust their bishop mm-hmm. and please God, they can recognize that their bishop is, is teaching as Christ desires them to teach and teaching what the church has always taught and mm. will continue to teach. Interesting. Is that helpful, do you think? I think, yeah, that, that perspective, especially what you said about that this really, it feels new because maybe the the medium by which the, the information is coming is Precisely. newer. But it really is historically quite commonplace almost, unfortunately. And remember, you know, a, a thousand years ago, none of this was even known until seven months later when, you know, when sure. the scroll arrived on the ship and, <laughs> and went to the other country and they said, oh, that's going on. After it had been hand copied by monks or something <laughs> precisely <Yeah. laughs> but you know even great saints have disagreed with other with each other sure. on things surely that's very interesting so from a practical standpoint what would you say to someone who was feeling um uh, frustrated or or confused by the teachings of any kind of more popular online presently uh priest or bishop and and concerned you know to me like i i always just err on the side of you know I'm not going to get worked up about something that isn't fundamentally related to my or the, or the salvation of others. Mm-hmm. And if, if someone is running into a burning building and they don't realize they're running into a burning building for some reason, I'm going to try to help them be aware of that. But if they're just running in a direction that isn't what I prefer, I'm going to let them run that direction. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think it's so easy for us to get super wound up about stuff that maybe isn't as crucial as we end up feeling like it is. I, I think a trust factor, a human trust factor is, is, part of it. So if you trust your friend, you're going to trust your friend. If your trust, if your trusted friend seems to be leading you astray, I think you're going to address your trusted friend. Sure. So I think it's the same, you know, with your bishop who please God, you can trust. 
then you trust your bishop. Mm. And if there's a question about that trust, then I think you address your bishop. Mm. If it's on social media, then maybe you address it there. I think a first caveat or a caution would be, you know, unplug from a lot of social media because I think most of our people are suffering from overexposure Mm -hmm. to media and they're just looking at all these things. And they, that just simply, to be honest, I think that becomes a grave distraction. It's a distraction, not paying attention to the Lord. And I always say, maybe you'd be better off, you know, reading the life of the saint or, (laughs) or doing this, but sincerely, like I, I asked people recently in my confirmation homilies right now, I'm using, um, just now, uh, made blessed uh, Carlo Acutis, the 15-year-old mm-hmm. from uh, Italy who was buried in Assisi and just yesterday was his beatification mass. Mm-hmm. Well, there are people who don't even know who Carlo Acutis is. But thanks to social media, I've learned an awful about personally mm-hmm. about Carlo Acutis, and he's now the patron saint of the internet. <laughs> so I think it's phenomenal we should turn to him and say, Let's hope that the truth is what's communicated. Ooh, yeah. I remember very well, you know, Cardinal John Foley, who was a Philadelphia priest then, and he became the archbishop in charge of social communications at the Vatican. And whenever he would meet uh, all the press corps, so whether it, it was all sorts of media, not quite the media that it is today, sure. but he was in the office for like 25 years. And he, they would say, what is the most important thing about your job? And he would say, for me and for you to communicate what is true. Mm. Wow. Well, I think that's extraordinary. So is mm-hmm. the truth being communicated? Yeah. That's that's the question. Amen. Maybe it's being communicated in a in a way that I might not prefer. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh as we were taught in philosophy class, maybe it's a half truth. <laughs> maybe it's not really addressing the truth mm-hmm. and trying to step around the truth, but I think we have to ask ourselves, is the truth being communicated? Mm. Is it clear? Is it charitable? Is it respectful? Mm. And boy, if we ask those questions right now on social media, <laughs> I think that would be critical. I agree with you completely. And and that also, to follow that up, is circling back to just our overall theme today. I just so appreciate and thank God for the office of the bishop, because what we see when we're part of a faith community that does not have that foundation of authority, of teaching and truth and the years of, of protection that Christ promised uh, over the truth what we see is we see communities that just splinter and splinter and splinter. And what we see is fracturing of the body of Christ and um, internally, even, you know, set aside the community question for a second, your own spirituality looks totally different when you're willing to submit to the authority that Christ put on, on, on earth. Um, It's no longer, I am the, the, the person that decides what is true. You know, like there's this compulsion that I find and that I found when I was not Catholic or when I considered myself not Catholic, there's this compulsion to like learn all the Greek and translate the Bible yourself. And, you know, you got to get your own understanding of the scriptures because you can't trust anyone. That's not what Christ wanted. He at no point did he say, make sure you're able to read these words in the original language. And, you know, <laughs> I want one of these in every household. He would have given us in a divine printing press if he wanted one in every household, <laughs> if that was his primary concern, you know. So I just appreciate so much, Bishop, your leadership, your well, I think office. Also, Nick, we have yeah. to say that the office itself is an office that is is very familial. Mm. So, you know, the office, oftentimes the bishop is referred to as the father of the community of faith. Yes. And I, I've said that here, you know, to be the father of the family of faith of the Diocese of Toledo. So it is, and you're a young father and you know what it's like to be a spouse and a, and a father. Mm-hmm. And it very much is 
handing on to the family of faith what I have received, and mm-hmm. you do that as a father. It means being faithful first yourself. It means leading and guiding them, oftentimes when maybe they might go astray. Mm-hmm. It means you know being strong when you need to be strong, gentle when you know you need to be gentle, loving always. But it's all the things that a father needs to be. Mm. And that father figure is very much part of it. In the directory for the uh, life and ministry of the bishop, the, which I helped to translate at the Vatican, <laughs> the you know the wording is that the, the bishop, for example, for his priest, is both a father and a brother. Wow. So in many ways, in in life in the family of the of the diocese, he's he's father, brother, and friend. Even that's the way the yeah. directory refers to the bishop: father, brother, and that's friend. Beautiful. So he becomes all of those things. But he's the touch point because it's what Christ gave for the church. Do you ever feel a pressure on yourself for all every, of those Every things? minute of every day. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, I just think about the, the three little souls that I'm in charge of and then, you know, ministering to my wife and, and trying to keep myself in a good place spiritually so that I can be what I need to be for them. And I just think that's a lot of pressure. And then you've got hundreds of thousands of souls that you're in charge if of. If I thought of it, I would collapse out of, out of fear and anxiety. I won't bring it up again. <laughs> but, but the gift is that I also know, I mean, frankly, I can tell you something that was very striking to me. When I first arrived in the diocese and I was doing, you might recall, 15 deanery visits. Mm -hmm. So I did a deanery visit, which included uh, usually Vespers evening prayer and a homily and then a gathering with all the people. It began, though, with having supper with the priests of the deanery because Mm -hmm. the priests are my closest collaborators. And I can't do anything. I mean, literally, they are my arms and my legs everywhere in the diocese because I can't be there. So they are there Mm -hmm. and in the person of Christ. And I remember a priest asked me, he said, well, what is one of the most striking things, you know, coming here as the ordinary? Well, I had been an auxiliary bishop, but not an ordinary before. And I said, spiritually, one of the most striking things is that in every mass throughout the entire diocese, every day, my name is being prayed for and lifted up in the Eucharistic prayer. So knowing the, the stress, the pressure and all the rest that is, and the responsibility that is so weighty, by the same token, knowing that I have the prayers of the faithful mm-hmm. and the gift that my name is mentioned in the Eucharist, what a humbling reality. Yes. And that in the Eucharist, you know, we pray as Catholics for the Pope and we name our bishop. Yeah. So th- th- humbly, I-, I can't get over what a spiritual strength that has been for me from the very first moment. And I tell people all the time, I say to them, please pray for me. And they look at me and I say, because it's the only reason I'm standing up. Yeah. And I'm convinced of that. I have goosebumps just thinking about what you said there about each Eucharist that's celebrated. I want to encourage our viewers um, or listeners Next time that you're in Mass and it comes to the consecration prayers and that you hear the priest uh, saying what you're used to him saying, but maybe you're not necessarily honed in on, on looking for these words, watch or listen for the, the priest's words as he prays for Bishop Thomas and offer a prayer yourself for Bishop Thomas and all of our priests and bishops everywhere. Um, that's so beautiful. I had never really processed it in that way. And I think it really underlines what we're talking about, and that is a, a bishop is set you know, set in place to care as the shepherd of a flock Mm -hmm. and it's a particular flock. And that flock, while he is praying and ministering to them, that flock literally is praying and ministering to him. Wow. That's so beautiful. What a, what a great note to end on Bishop. Are we done already? (laughs) We can keep going. (laughs) 
If you have enjoyed today's episode of the Awakened Catholic Show and you enjoy this show and maybe all the other shows on Awakened Catholic as well, um, you could be a part of making all of this possible. You could join a community of people that are the reason that this work is able to happen. It's called the Awakened Nation. It's a community of people like yourself um, who, through a monthly contribution and through community prayer and engagement, uh, elevate this work and make it all possible. So I want to invite you to consider joining the Awakened Nation at awakencatholic.org slash donate. Folks, what a delight to be here with Nick Delatore on Awaken Catholic. And I'm so pleased because obviously every bishop should use all the possible means of social media at his availability to proclaim the gospel. And I think, I hope that this little session has been just that for all of you. And if you have enjoyed it, I hope that you, like me, will support and encourage others to support Awaken Catholic. So Bishop Thomas, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, I've gained so much by, through this conversation, and I'm sure that our viewers and listeners uh, will be edified in their own lives through this as well. Well, I'm so grateful for the opportunity, Nick. Thanks to our viewers and listeners. I certainly hope that you will continue to pray for, for me and for my intentions so that I might be a humble, holy, and uh, faithful bishop after Jesus Christ and do what he has called me to do for the church. Amen. Thank would you. you Nick. Would you mind offering a digital benediction to our I'm viewers? I'm happy to do that. Good. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Thanks be to God. I lost my microphone there. Oh, no. <laughs> Must have been the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I think it still works. I think you're good. <laughs> all right. God bless you all. We'll see you next time on The Awakened Catholic Show. This show and all media on Awaken Catholic is made possible by the Awaken Nation and the Hollow app. The Awaken Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org slash donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hollow.app slash awaken.